Chapter Three of the Two Gun Man by Charles Alden Seltzer. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Penn. The Cabin in the Flat. It was the day appointed by Ferguson for his presence at the Two Diamond Ranch, and he was going to keep his word. Three hours out of Dry Bottom, he had struck the Ute Trail and was loping his pony through a cottonwood that skirted the river. It was an enchanted country through which he rode a land of vast distances of white sunlight blue skies and clear pure air mountains rose in the distances their snow-capped peaks showing above the clouds like bald rock spires above the calm level of the sea over the mountains swam the sun its lower rim slowly disappearing behind the peaks throwing off broad white shafts of light that soon began to dim as very colors rising in a slumberous haze like a gauze veil mingled with them ferguson's gaze wandered from the trail to the red buttes that fringed the river he knew this world there was no novelty here for him he knew the lava beds looming gray and dead beneath the foothills he knew the grotesque rock shapes that seemed to hint of a mysterious past nature had not altered her face on the broad levels were the yellow-tinted lines that told of the presence of soapweed, the dark lines that betrayed the mesquite, the sacatone belts that marked the little gullies. Then there were the baranacas, the arid stretches where the sagebrush and the cactus grew. Snaky okatia dotted the space. The crab yucca had not lost its ugliness. Ferguson looked upon the world with unseeing eyes, he had lived here long, and the country had not changed. It would never change. Nothing ever changed here but the people. But he himself had not changed. Twenty-seven years in this country was a long time, for here life was not measured by age, but by experience. Looking back over the years, he could see that he was living today as he had lived last year, as he had lived during the last decade. A hard life but having its compensations his coming to the two diamond ranch was merely another of those incidents that during the past year had broken the monotony of range life for him he had had some success in breaking up a band of cattle thieves which had made existence miserable for sid tucker his employer and the latter had recommended him to stafford the promise of high wages had been attractive and so he had come he had not expected to surprise anyone when, during his conversations with the tall man in Dry Bottom, he had discovered that the latter was the man for whom he was to work, he had been surprised himself. But he had not revealed his surprise. Experience and association with men who kept their emotions pretty much to themselves had taught him the value of repression when in the presence of others. But alone, he allowed his emotions full play. There was no one to see no one to hear and the silence and the distances and the great swimming blue sky would not tell stafford's action in coming to dry bottom for a gunfighter had puzzled him not a little apparently the two diamond manager was intent upon the death of the rustler he had mentioned he had been searching for a man who could shoot he had said Ferguson had interpreted this to mean that he desired to employ a gunfighter who would not scruple to kill any man he pointed out, whether innocent or guilty. He had had some experience with unscrupulous ranch managers, and he had admired them very little. 
therefore during the ride today his lips had curled sarcastically many times riding through a wide clearing in the cottonwood he spoke a thought that had troubled him not a little since he had entered stafford's employ why he said as he rode along sitting carelessly in the saddle he's wantin to make a gunfighter out of me but i reckon i ain't gonna shoot no man unless i'm pretty sure he's gunnin for me his lips curled ironically i wonder what the boys at the lazy j would think if they knowed that a guy was trying to make a gunfighter out of their old straw boss i reckon they'd think that guy was loco or a heap mistaken in his man but i'm seeing this thing through i ain't riding a hundred miles just to take a look at the man who's hiring me it'll be a change and when i go back to the lazy j it was not the pony's fault neither was it ferguson's the pony was experienced behind his slant eyes was stored a world of horse wisdom that had pulled him and his rider through many tight places and ferguson had ridden horses all his life he would not have known what to do without one but the pony stumbled the cause was a prairie dog hole concealed under a clump of matted mesquite ferguson lunged forward caught at the saddle horn missed it and pitched head foremost out of the saddle turning completely over and alighting upon his feet he stood erect for an instant but the momentum had been too great he went down and when he tried to rise a twinge of pain in his right ankle brought a grimace to his face he arose and hopped over to a flat rock near where his pony now stood grazing as though nothing had happened drawing off his boot ferguson made a rapid examination of the ankle it was inflamed and painful but not broken he believed he could see it swelling he rubbed it hoping to assuage the pain the woolen sock interfered with the rubbing and he drew it off for a few minutes he worked with the ankle but to little purpose he finally became convinced that it was a bad sprain and he looked up scowling the pony turned an inquiring eye upon him and he grinned suddenly smitten with the humor of the situation you ain't got no call to look so doggone innocent about it he said if you'd been tending to your business you wouldn't have stepped into no damn gopher hole the pony moved slowly away and he looked whimsically after it remarking maybe if i'd been tending to my business it wouldn't have happened either he spoke again to the pony i reckon you know that too mustard and you're some wise the animal was now at some little distance from the rock upon which he was sitting he arose hobbling on one foot toward it carrying the discarded boot in his hand he thought of riding with the foot bare at the two diamond he was sure to find some sort of liniment which with the help of a bandage would materially assist nature in he was passing a filmy mesquite clump the bare foot swinging wide there was a warning rattle a sharp thrust of a flat brown head ferguson halted in astonishment almost knocked off his balance with the suddenness of the attack he still held the boot his fingers gripping it tightly he raised it with a purely involuntary motion as though to hurl it at his insidious enemy but he did not the arm fell to his side and his face slowly whitened he stared dully and uncomprehendingly at the sinuous shape that was slipping noiselessly away through the matted grass 
Somehow he had never thought of being bitten by a rattler. He had seen so many of them that he had come to look upon them only as targets at which he might shoot when he thought he needed practice. And now he was bitten. The unreality of the incident surprised him. He looked around at the silent hills, at the sun that swam above the mountain peaks, at the great vast arc of sky that yawned above him. Hills, sky, and sun seemed all so unreal. It was as though he had been suddenly thrust into a land of dreams. But presently the danger of the situation burst upon him, and he lived once more in the reality. He looked down at his foot. A livid pinpoint wound showed in the flesh beside the arch. A tiny stream of blood was oozing from it. He forgot the pain of the sprained ankle and stood upon both feet, his body suddenly rigid, his face red with a sudden consuming anger, shaking a tense fist at the disappearing rattler. You damn sneak! he shouted shrilly. In the same instant, he had drawn one of his heavy guns and swung it over his head. Its crashing report brought a sudden swishing from beneath the grass, and he hopped over closer and sent three more bullets into the threshing brown body. He stood over it for a moment, his teeth showing in a savage snarl. "'You won't bite anyone else, damn you!' he shouted. The impotence of this conduct struck him immediately. He flushed and dropped his head, a grim smile slowly wearing down his expression of panic. Seldom did he allow his emotions to reveal themselves so plainly. But the swiftness of the rattler's attack, the surprise when he had not been thinking of such a thing, the fact that he was far from help and that his life was in danger, all had a damaging effect upon his self-control. And yet the smile showed that he was still master of himself. Very deliberately, he returned to the rock upon which he had been sitting, ripping off his coat and tearing away the sleeve of his woolen shirt. Twisting the sleeve into the form of a rude rope, he tied it loosely around his leg, just above the ankle. Then he thrust his knife between the improvised rope and the leg, forming a crude tourniquet. He twisted the knife until tears of pain formed in his eyes. Then he fastened the knife by tucking the haft under the rope. His movements had been very deliberate, but sure, and in a few minutes he hobbled to the pony and swung into the saddle. He had seen men who had been bitten by rattlers. He had seen them die and he knew that if he did not get help within half an hour, there would be little use of doing anything further. In half an hour, the virus would have so great a grip upon him that it would be practically useless to apply any of the antidotes commonly known to the inhabitants of the country. Inquiries that he had made at Dry Bottom had resulted in the discovery that the Two Diamond Ranch was nearly thirty miles from the town. If he had averaged eight miles an hour... He had covered about twenty-four miles of the distance. That would still leave about six. And he could not hope to ride those six miles in time to get any benefit from an antidote. His lips straightened. He stared grimly at a ridge of somber hills that fringed the skyline. They had told him back in Dry Bottom that the Two Diamond Ranch was somewhere in a big basin below those hills. I reckon I won't get there after all, he said, commenting aloud. Thereafter he rode grimly on, keeping a good grip upon himself, for he had seen men bitten by rattlers who had lost their self-control, and they had not been good to look upon. 
Much depended upon coolness. Somewhere he had heard that it was a mistake for a bitten man to exert himself in the first few minutes following a bite. Exertion caused the virus to circulate more rapidly through the system. And so he rode at an even pace, carefully avoiding the rough spots, though keeping as closely to the trail as possible. If it hadn't been a diamond back, and a five-foot one, this rope that I got around my leg might be enough to fool him, he said once aloud. But I reckon he's got me. His eyes lighted savagely for an instant. But I got him, too. Had the nerve to think that he could get away after throwing his hooks into me. Presently his eyes caught the saffron light that glowed in the western sky. He laughed with a grim humor. I've heard tell that a snake don't die till sundown, much as you heard him. If that's so, and I don't get to where I can get some help, I reckon it'll be a standoff between him and me as to who's going first. A little later he drew Mustard to a halt, sitting very erect in the saddle and fixing his gaze upon a tall cottonwood tree that rose near the trail. His heart was racing madly, and in spite of his efforts he felt himself swaying from side to side. He had often seen a rattler doing that, flat, ugly head raised above his coiled body, forked tongue shooting out, his venomous eyes glittering, the head and the part of the body rising above the coils swaying gracefully back and forth. Yes, gracefully, for in spite of his hideous aspect, there was a certain horrible ease of movement about a rattler a slippery, sinuous motion that partly revealed reserved strength and hinted at repressed energy. Many times while watching them, he had been fascinated by their grace, and now, sitting in the saddle, he caught himself wondering if the influence of a bite were great enough to cause a person bitten to imitate the snake. He laughed when this thought struck him, and drove his spurs sharply against Mustard's flanks, riding forward past the cottonwood at which he had been staring. Hell, he ejaculated as he passed the tree. What a fool notion. But he could not banish the notion from his mind, and five minutes later, when he tried again to sit steadily, he found the swaying more pronounced. The saddle seemed to rock with him, and even by jamming his uninjured foot tightly into the oxbow stirrup, he could not stop swaying. Maybe I won't get very far, he said, realizing that the poison had entered his system and that presently it would riot in his veins. But I'm going on till I stop. I wouldn't want that damn rattler to know that he had made me quit so soon. He urged Mustard to a faster pace, even while realizing that speed was hopeless. He could never reach the two diamond. Convinced of this, he halted the pony again, swaying in the saddle, and holding for the first time to the pommel in an effort to steady himself but he still swayed. He laughed mockingly. Now, what do you think of that? He said, addressing the silence. You might think I was plum tenderfoot and didn't know how to ride a horse proper. He urged the pony onward again, and for some little time rode with bowed head, trying to keep himself steady by watching the trail. He rode through a little clearing where the grass was matted and some naked rocks reared aloft. Near a clump of sagebrush, he saw a sudden movement, a rattler trying to slip away unnoticed. 
but the snake slid into Ferguson's vision, and with a sneer of hate, he drew one of his weapons and whipped it over his head. Its roar awakened echoes in the wood. Twice, three times, the crashing report sounded, but the rattler whisked away and disappeared into the grass, apparently uninjured. For an instant, Ferguson scowled. Then a grin of mockery reached his flushed face. I reckon I'm done, he said. Can't even hit a rattler no more. And him a brother or sister of that other one. A delirious light flashed upon his eyes, and he seemed on the point of dismounting. I'll certainly smash you some, he said, speaking to the snake, which he could no longer see. I ain't gonna let no snake bite me and get away with it. But he now smiled guiltily, embarrassment shining in his eyes. I reckon that wasn't the snake that bit you, Ferguson, he said. The one that bit you is back on the trail. He ain't going to die till sundown. Not till sundown, he repeated mechanically, grimly. Ferguson ain't going to die till sundown. He rode on, giving no attention to the pony whatever but letting the reins fall and holding to the pommel of the saddle. His face was burning now, his hands were twitching, and an unnatural gleam had come into his eyes. "'Ferguson got hooked by a rattler!' he suddenly exclaimed, hilarity in his voice. "'He run plumb into that reptile, tried to walk on him with a bare foot.' The laugh was checked as suddenly as it had come, and a grim quality entered his voice. But Ferguson wasn't no tenderfoot. He didn't scare none. He went right on, not saying anything. You see, he was reckoning to be man's size. He rode on a little way, and as he entered another clearing, a rational gleam came into his eyes. I must still have gone it, he muttered. A shadow darkened the trail. He heard mustard whinny. He became aware of a cabin in front of him, heard an exclamation, saw dimly the slight figure of a woman sitting on a small porch, as through a mist he saw her rise and approach him, standing on the edge of the porch, looking at him. He smiled, bowing low to her over his pony's mane. I shot him, ma'am, he said gravely, but he ain't gonna die till sundown. As from some great distance, a voice seemed to come to him. Mercy, it said. What is wrong? Who is shot? Why, the snake, ma'am, he returned thickly. He slid down from his pony and staggered to the edge of the porch, leaning against one of the slender posts and hanging dizzily on. You see, ma'am, that damn rattler got Ferguson. But Ferguson ain't reckoning on dying till sundown. He couldn't let no snake get the best of him. He saw the woman start toward him, felt her hands on his arms, helping him upon the porch. Then he felt her hands on his shoulders, felt them pressing him down. He felt dimly that there was a chair under him, and he sank into it, leaning back and stretching himself out full length. A figure flitted before him, and presently there was a sharp pain in his foot. He started out of the chair, and was abruptly shoved back into it. Then the figure leaned over him, prying his jaws apart with some metal-like object, and pouring something down his throat. 
He clicked as he swallowed, vainly trying to brush away the object. You're a hell of a snake, he said savagely. Then the world blurred dizzily, and he drifted into oblivion. End of chapter 3